Good morning. All right. Glad you're here. How many of you moved around a lot as a kid or as an adult? Anybody? I didn't move around much as a kid. We were pretty stable. We stayed in uh, eastern New Mexico most of my life. Came from West Texas after an oil crash. Um, my dad did haul, hauled mud for an oil company. If you know how mud goes into oil rigs, then uh, good for you. Doesn't come in too handy uh, as knowledge in the world most of the time. Um, but when the oil crash happened, we moved to eastern New Mexico. I stayed there most of my life. Um, but then I got older, and after college, we've moved around quite a bit. Um, kind of had some different forks in the road in our life as we're kind of going through our series fork in the road. And some of those were choices we made to move, and others were events that happened beyond our control when the economy uh, kind of tanked in 08, 09. Uh, there were moments that weren't really up to us, but caused us to move or go to different places. But we've, we've moved around a lot. We ended up in Oakdale, and we've been here the longest we've ever lived anywhere. It's actually in Oakdale since we've been married. This is our longest tenure of any location. And one of the ways to keep track of how long we've been here is you can uh, follow our third child, Shelby, was born shortly after we got here. We moved here, and Christy was like six months pregnant, and we had her a few months later. And Shelby's probably gotten the most connections to uh, Mountain View Church as any of our kids because uh, Dr. Bruce delivered her. She was born in Oakdale. And Angie Gennard was her nurse, and they all are part of this church, but the maternity wing at Oakdale is no longer open. Um, so we only have one, we don't actually have any child that can kind of truly say the statement, Mustang born and Mustang bred, going to be a Mustang till the day I'm dead, right? The Oakdale saying, because we had one Mustang born, but uh, sh she wasn't conceived here. Uh, <laughs> You can do the math on it. Uh, anyways, and we had uh, one that was delivered in Modesto because the maternity wing was shut down here. So we don't have any kids that can say that when they get older. We're really sad about that. Um, but we moved around a lot. For us, the hardest part about moving around is kind of that initial loneliness. You're in a place. You're not sure who your friends are going to be. You're not sure who you want your friends to be. And connecting with people is tough. And, and we had people that were nice to us. But not having any meaningful connections is difficult. Now we look at Paul right now and we find that this is a guy who has moved around from place to place to place. And now he was intentional. He was on a missions journey. So it wasn't by accident. He chose to be uh, mobile and itinerant for the sake of the gospel. But it would appear as though when he went to Thessalon Thessalonica um, that he intended to stay there for a time and plant a church and establish a ministry but what happened there is he was not warmly received. In fact, he was run out of town. And then he went on to Berea, which we talked about last week, Ron mentioned. And there, the people from Thessalonica chased him down and ran him out of town there. And he had to leave so quickly that he left his two closest companions behind that were traveling with him. So today as we pick it up, we're going to find that Paul is all alone in the city of Athens. He'd been escorted there by other believers. Uh, we're not sure how many or who, just says some other believers escorted him to Athens, and they've brought him there, and now he's all alone, and he's in this city where he doesn't know anyone, he doesn't have any connections, it doesn't appear it was part of his original plan, just through these series of forks in the road, God has somehow led him to the city of Athens, and upon his arrival, he's going to ask for those guys to go back and send Timothy and Silas to him. Now, what would you think Paul would do in Athens? If I was him, the guy has moved around a lot for the sake of the gospel. He's been beaten. Um, he has just endured hardship. He's weary from traveling, of walking many miles to get there. And I would think at this point in time is where I would sit and realize, okay, this is my time for some R&R. &R. 
I've been on the go. I've been busy. It's time to sit back and relax. But Paul is not wired that way if we've read about him and seen his life. That's not exactly his MO for anywhere he ends up. So Paul goes around the city of Athens, and this is where we're going to pick it up. He's going to do what he does best, which is preach the gospel. And out of this time in Athens, it leads to what is kind of his best-known sermon, the Sermon on Mars Hill. And so if you'll join me, we're going to be in Acts 17 today. We're going to start in verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. They took him and brought him into a meeting of the Oropagus, where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Oropagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around to look carefully at the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives life and breath to everything else. From one man he made all the nations that they, they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out and find him. Though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Oropagus, also a woman named Demarius, and a number of others. So there's a few things that stood out to me in reading this passage on Paul being in Athens. And the first thing I saw was in verse 16, where we find Paul's spirit was moved by what he saw. And while he is uh, in the city, his spirit is going to be troubled by what he sees around him. Some versions say his spirit was distressed or provoked him. What bothered his spirit so much? He looks around and he sees a city full of idols, full of temples constructed to false gods. They keep telling me to pull this out and up. Back. I'm just going to do it right now rather than keep fidgeting with it. All right. Good? Okay. Sorry. So Athens set five miles inland from its port, and it was a prominent city in the Greek empire. 
And in the 5th century, it was vital in keeping actually the attack of the Persians from conquering Greece. So they actually defeated um, Athens. But Athens quickly rebuilt and rebuilt its navy and was vital in helping Greece overthrow uh, the Persian uh, as they tried to conquer that part of the world. But after this period of victory, we find that uh, Athens and Greece began building many false uh, temples to false gods. They built many of the great architecture structures in that part of the world during this period of time. Uh, The Parthenon was built then, and it's still standing. If you've ever visited Greece or been there, I talked with some friends of ours who was there and confirmed, made sure it was still standing, um, and it is as of last report. So the Parthenon was built in that time. Um, it was a city of culture that attracted intellectuals from all over the world. Uh, it was known for its great philosophers, Plato, uh, Socrates, Aristotle, we're all from there. And in these times, it kind of became known as this intellectual gathering place for the people of the world. But then something happened in 146 BC, the Romans conquered Athens, and they were lovers of Greek culture, so they actually did something that wasn't uh, super common. They allowed Athens to carry on its own institutions as a free city within the Roman Empire. So Athens got to operate as a free, free city within the empire. But Paul's going to come around the scene around 50 AD, and at this point in time, Athens is not a political or military power. But what it's still known as, as a gathering place of philosophers and intellects. And Paul arrives in this city full of uh, philosophers and intellects. And it's a city full of idols and temples to false gods. And this is going to just really bother him. If you remember, Paul described himself as a Hebrew of Hebrews. Well, what's one of the main commandments for a Hebrew of Hebrews is, you shall not have any other gods before me. Don't worship idols. And Paul knew this, and in fact, growing up, this would have been a major offense. And so he was not okay. His spirit was disturbed by what he saw. I don't know if any of you have ever grown up thinking something was just not okay and not right, and then you were exposed to it, and it was kind of a shock to your senses the first time. Uh, I'll give you an example. Like, I watch, I watch hunting shows. Um, I'm okay with it. Some of you may not be, but it's good to give you an example of shock to your senses. On one of the shows, they took out two girls from New York City who'd never been hunting before. And, it's, and it, growing up in that environment, not probably ever shooting a gun or carrying a gun, especially never have gone hunting, um, they took them hunting. And one of them actually shot a deer her first hunt out. And she starts to walk close to the deer, and then, then she starts to cry because she realizes what she's done. She's, she's killed this animal. And it was a shock to her senses. So imagine Paul's grown up his whole life thinking this was wrong. Idol worship is wrong. He's a Hebrew of Hebrews. And now he's exposed so heavily to it. It it bothered him in his spirit. It disturbed him. It disturbed him to see these temples built to false gods, these people so consumed with the worship of false god. And Paul went to Athens to escape this persecution. But when he arrives, his spirit is troubled. And he responds to that troubling in his spirit. And so the next thing we see is Paul acted. He acted on that troubling in his spirit. We already said he was not one to sit on the sidelines. And so after seeing these idols and these temples to false gods, Paul begins engaging the people around him because he feels he's compelled to do something. And one of the first places he would always start is the local synagogue. He would go there to meet with other people who had some sort of shared background. Um, Ron mentioned this last, last week, Judaism and Christianity are very close. And in fact, up until the New Testament, we're very much in agreement all the way through. So a lot of times he would go to this place because they had a shared connection of a God as creator, 
a God of sustainer, they kind of knew Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. They had some connecting points. And so Paul would go to the synagogue and begin meeting there. But it also appears he went to the marketplace and began connecting with the people there. And as we know, as the Bible said and we've read, it was a city of philosophers. And there was two in particular philosophers that encountered him, Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. And these would have been people with very different views on life, but neither would have been believers. Uh, An Epicurean was someone who had the mindset kind of, if it feels good, do it, or live for pleasure. In a sense, we might say, eat, drink, and be merry. They live for sensual desire. Um, Today, we might call them hedonists. Uh, Stoics were kind of the opposite of that. Everything was to be thought through, had to be rational, had to be logical. Don't show emotion and don't respond to emotion, but use logic and intellect to guide you. And so if I was to put a face on these two characteristics, it would be that of Captain Kirk and Commander Spock um, from Star Trek. Kirk would be the Epicurean, kind of lo- uh, to leap without looking and act from the heart. And Spock, every, I mean, obviously everything was logical. He would be the stoic. Logic and intellect guided him. And so these are the kind of the people that Paul's encountering there. Um, and they begin to ask him questions and they want to hear him speak more. Uh, and they use the word uh, babbler to describe him which is not a compliment. Originally, it meant a bird picking up scraps, and then it went on to describe a scrap collector. So they're actually kind of insulting Paul, but at the same time, they're curious about what he said. And so they're going to invite him to come and speak to the whole council and share with them what he's speaking about because their their ears are kind of perked. They're they're interested. They want to know what he's saying. And so they asked Paul to come speak before this council, and it was the council of ours, and it was named after the Greek god of thunder and war. And apparently, this was a location that the residents and guests of Athens would meet commonly at. They would meet there regularly. They would discuss and debate new philosophies and new teachings. And the location of this was on a place, we call it Mars Hill. Uh, The Greek would have been the Hill of Ars, um, but we, we know it better by its Latin name, so we call it Mars Hill. Now, this was a bit of a different culture and a different time than what we're used to, especially today. Um, Generally, what happens in our society, if if there's a disagreement, we kind of just shut down, right? We don't listen. We don't acknowledge. um, It's it's get as far from me as possible if there's a differing viewpoint, right? I mean, that's pretty pretty evident, I would say. Uh, The difference here is they didn't agree with Paul necessarily, but they invited him to come share and speak. And they were going to listen to this new teaching Paul had for them. And so Paul's going to go before them and get an opportunity to share the gospel with people that would clearly be non-believers. And so that's the next thing we see Paul do is he gets up before them and he shares the gospel. So he's before this council of ours on Mars Hill. And he's going to try to unpack the gospel as succinctly as possible. Um, so we already said with the Jews, he, they would have a background. Like, God is creator. God is the one who brought them out through the exodus. They have this background of God, of Yahweh. Well, now he's speaking to unbelievers who have no background of God, no acknowledgement of God. So how do you go and connect with people like that? So Paul's going to look for an opportunity, a window of opportunity to find some sort of connecting point. Because they don't have the connecting point of God from the beginning, the way the Jewish people would have. And he talks about, uh, in a sense, his... The way he would do this in 1 Corinthians 9, he sums it up. I'm just going to read a couple verses from it. But he says this, To the weak I became weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. I do this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. 
So we look at Paul's message that he's about to share, and one of the, the or critiques of it is that he doesn't give a real strong gospel presentation necessarily. Uh, some people point to it and say he didn't really present the gospel as clearly as in other places. But if you look at what he's trying to do, he's trying to connect with people who have no background. If you look at Paul's salvation theology, if you want to read it in its longhand form, you can go read the book of Romans and you could see Paul could have clearly given this long expose on every point of salvation and how sin came through one man, and it infected all of us, and now we're all under the sin nature, and we're cursed by sin, and through Christ's righteousness, we've been brought back to God. And he wrote extensively about it in Romans, but he doesn't have that kind of time. He's given the opportunity to present the gospel, and he's got to do it in a succinct manner. And so how do you connect with people if they've given you a few minutes of time, and you've got to establish God from the beginning through Christ into the resurrection? And imagine giving yourself just a few minutes. So when we look back, I think it's a little errant to say Paul wasn't thorough in his explanation. If people wanted a thorough explanation, Paul would have been more than happy to give them that. But he has a limited time. So what does he do? He uses something that he found in the city while he was there, an inscription he found to the unknown God. So he comes before them, and the first thing he does is he compliments them. Again, this would be counterculture to what we do. We generally start our conversations with an insult of someone. Let me tell you why you're wrong, you idiot. That's kind of how we engage people. And so it's kind of counterintuitive because he compliments them even though his spirit was disturbed. So he was clearly bothered by what was happening. It wasn't an agreement or an acceptance of it. But he tries to establish some sort of rapport with them, some sort of relationship with them. He doesn't start his salvation presentation insulting them. And then he goes on to reference the inscription to the unknown God. So these were people that were so worried about offending any of the gods, they had a pluralistic society, that they even made uh, temples and shrines and altars to an unknown God for fear they would offend this unknown God. And so Paul's going to use this as a hook. And he's going to say, let me tell you about this unknown God and where you've gone wrong and not worshiping him. And so to an intellectual person, being ignorant of something um, would not be a good thing. They want it to be uh, apprised of things. They want to know what's going on. And so to this group of intellectual people, he's saying, you've been ignorant to this. Let me help you. It wasn't saying you're ignorant and that's it. He said, you've been ignorant to this fact, and you even know, like, there's an unknown God. Now I'm going to explain him to you. So he uses this as a hook, and he has to start at the beginning. So he starts with God in creation, and he establishes God at the beginning, and he speaks about a God who doesn't need human hands to be in into existence. And for a group of people that have spent years, years and years and years building temples to false gods, building idols to false gods, this is crazy to them because this is a God who doesn't need their temples to false God. He doesn't need a temple to be worshipped in. He was established at the beginning. He is Yahweh, the self-existent one. And so Paul is trying to establish this point that he was the beginning. That God is the one who, this unknown God is the one who existed from the beginning. Because who makes idols? People do. So when we make an idol to worship, who has created the God that we are worshipping? We're worshiping the God we created for ourselves. And Paul's trying to explain, this is not the same God. This is a different God. He is the self-existent one, the one above, above all others. You can go read Job 38 
and God gives a really good description of himself to Job. And Paul, I believe, is trying to really succinctly state what is found there almost and say, this God is all-powerful. He's almighty. He was the creator. He's the sustainer. And he does it very briefly. And then he tells him God is not far off. He can be found. But the problem is you've lived in ignorance of this God. And he's saying you haven't been aware of him. You don't know who he is, so I'm going to tell you about who he is and how you can know him. And he's not far off from you. Um, And he tells us, God is gracious in spite of our ignorance. At one point in time, for those of us that are believers, we could all say there was a time when I was was ignorant to the truth of Christ, to believe in him. Or I I did not know it. I was unaware. But at some point, we became aware of that thing that truth. And Paul's trying to say like, now that you're aware of it, here's what God is asking you to do. He doesn't want you to live in just the unaware state. He wants you to be aware of who this unknown God is and make him known to you. So how do you know him? And Paul tells you the order to make things right with this God, you must repent and turn to Christ because ultimately there's a day of judgment coming. So we can trust that God is powerful He can save through the resurrection of Christ from the dead. And Paul gets to deliver this quick synopsis, this overarching, like the Bible in 30 seconds almost. God is creator. He didn't need people to create him. He's the self-existent one. We've been ignorant of him and in rebellion against him. But God is not far off from us. He is still gracious to us. And he proved he can save through Christ's resurrection from the dead for those that will turn and repent and turn to Christ. But once he mentions the resurrection, this is kind of where it runs out for him. People begin to sneer. They turn away. They don't like the the thought of that or the sound of that. And so his time runs out. But we don't find him continuing to argue or belabor the point. He realizes that his time of sharing is over, and now he trusts God with the results. I'm sure Paul could have kept preaching. We look at all he's written in the New Testament, I'm sure he had more than one sermon in his, in his back pocket ready to deliver. But he knew that he had a limited time. He shared with them what he could share, and then he trusted God with his results. He could not force anyone into being a believer. It looks highly likely that many of the people who heard this message did not become believers, in fact. But his presentation allowed for an open door to come back. It also allowed an open door where we saw some people did become believers. And God saves people through their faith in Christ. And we have to trust him with that. You know, we can't argue people into heaven. Uh, Sometimes we feel it's our obligation and responsibility to, to win an argument. And oftentimes at the sake of winning an argument, we ruin a relationship and nothing further for the gospel is accomplished. So you win an argument person goes apart from you, doesn't want to listen to you again, and still isn't a believer, and now all you've done is ostracize them. So Paul apparently says, okay, you want me to stop speaking, and I'll stop speaking. I trust God with the results, and some of the people actually became believers and started following him. But it doesn't appear as though he went in there guns blazing, ready to offend and upset this whole council. He knew he had a chance to present the gospel to a group of people that were not believers, and he tries to do so um, without offending, but being as truthful as possible. And that's a tough line to walk because we do have to be truthful. And if we're truthful about what we believe in the Bible is God is just, and it says he's going to judge at some point, but he's also not far off and he is gracious and he will forgive. And so there's this line we walk of informing people of what happens in unbelief, 
but God is still gracious to us. And, and Paul tried to walk that line with him. So what are some things that stood out as we looked at that? Well, for me, the first thought was, what disturbs your spirit? And in many ways, we look at the things that were happening in Athens, and we can see them happening in our culture. We worship sensual pleasure. We, we bow down before idols. And, and maybe that's not in a literal sense, but figuratively, many of us have bowed our hearts to idols and false gods. We worship creation more than we worship the creator. Are there any things that we walk around in our culture and in our lives that kind of disturb and move and distress our spirit? You know, I don't, I don't think we're supposed to walk around and just be constantly uh, disturbed. And we're not supposed to be chicken little. The sky is always falling. But I do think there's times where we, we should be sensitive when God disrupts and distresses our spirit. And when he points something out to them in our lives or the lives of people around us, and we should be aware of what's going on. So what disturbs your spirit? What causes you to realize, man, this is somewhere I need to act. This is something I need to do. When you look into the world, is there, is there something that causes that in your life, a stirring? Maybe it's a certain people group. Maybe it's a certain ministry. But what, what stirs your soul and your spirit to do something? Paul was just disturbed by what he saw. And then to follow up with that is, what are you going to do about it? When your spirit's disturbed and God stirs in your heart, what are you going to do about it? A couple weeks ago, I came home after a youth group, and I called someone in my family who'd been going through a difficult time. And, and I was aware they were going through a difficult time, but I had, I had never acted on that. And there's a big leap from awareness to action. I, I knew what was going on, but I knew that if I picked up and dialed the phone, that that's it. That now I've leapt from awareness to action, and I know that that's going to be involvement and commitment. And so it was kind of this, this thing of my mom kept saying, you need to call this person. You need to call this person. I don't want to call them. If I was honest, I even told my mom, I, said, I don't want to. Why? That's a big jump from being aware of what was happening to now becoming involved and acting. Because once I made the phone call, now I'm involved and I'm in the situation and I'm in the loop all of a sudden. And I, I'm a person that I'm pretty good being out of the loop. Um, if I, I mean, just, I feel, sometimes I feel guilty. We're not close to home. So when family situations arrive, don't, you don't call me, you're not the one. I'm not the family member that's called to help move or help watch kids or help do this or be there. But there's also times I feel guilty about that because like when family members pass away, I'm not always able to go. Or when there's situations going on where like I feel like I could be helpful, I'm not always there to help. And so it's kind of this guilt, and I told Christy uh, a few weeks ago that sometimes I feel guilty about it. But then right after that I said, but sometimes I'm so relieved that I don't have to deal with it. Because the difference of being aware to being involved is huge. And in our Christian walk, I think for many of us, that's a real struggle. Our spirit is moved to the point of awareness, but we're not ready to take the next step and become involved. Because the step from awareness to involvement means action, and that becomes difficult. That's where it's not easy anymore. See, Paul's spirit was moved, and he was aware of the problems in Athens, and he could have easily said, you know what? Athens wasn't on my original plan. I had a mission. I had, a, I had the spirit calling me to this place, and it moved me away. I'm just here in Athens to, to, to hide out. But God moves in his spirit, and he acted. 
So what do you do when God moves in your spirit? Do you act? Do you do something about it? Do you let the spirit move you to the point of action? Christy's reading a series of books to our kids, and it's called Christian Heroes. And the first book they read was about Nate Saint, who was a missionary pilot who went to Ecuador. Uh, then she read one uh, about Amy Carmichael. And one of the things, uh, common denominators I found in these books was the people that have written books about them are people who acted on what God moved in their spirit. They're not superhuman, but they're people who acted on God's prompting. You know, we don't write books about people and say, this is the most aware person I've ever known. They were aware of all these situations and all these causes, and they never did anything about any of them. And my fear, we look at our culture, and if we're honest, we're a culture that loves awareness but we're a culture that doesn't always love action. We like to be aware of all these causes and all these good things, but we don't always like to act and get involved. And Paul went from awareness to involvement, and that requires action. There's a great, great quote from, um, about moving into action by a Wesleyan minister named William Lonsdale Watkinson. And he said this, but, but denunciatory rhetoric is so much easier and cheaper than good works and proves a popular temptation, yet it is far better to light a candle than to curse the darkness. It's far better to do something than to just curse the darkness and be mad that it's happening. So we need to go from awareness to action when God moves in your spirit. Are you striving to be all things to all people? We looked at Paul. Paul was delicate with how he approached these people in Athens. He wasn't insulting. He wasn't confrontational. He was honest. And he challenged them on what they believe, and not all of them like that. But he became all things to all people and found a connecting point. Ultimately, he did this so he could have an opportunity to share Christ with them. He wanted people to admit they were a sinner in need of a Savior. And to believe that Jesus died on the cross and rose from the grave. He referenced the resurrection. And then ultimately, so we could choose to place our faith in Christ alone. And that invitation is still for us today if we have not believed in Christ as Savior that we would encourage you to do that or talk with someone about how you become a believer. And he did this by connecting the people and their culture and Christianity. He didn't embrace their culture. He didn't say, oh, it's good and I approve of it and God approves of it. But he didn't hide from it. He used their culture and what they did as a tool to reach people. Every year since I moved here, I judge at a, a speech tournament they have at Modesto. And uh, it's for high school students who are in a speech and debate tournament, and I go volunteer judge for one or two sessions. And uh, Joey used to go with me, but now that he's teaching, he won't be able to. And we'd use that as an opportunity to minister to young people and then go play golf. Um, So uh, (laughs) we'd go do that, and I'd always think, man, if these kids ever grow up and want to be pastors in Oakdale, I might be in trouble because some of them are very articulate and intelligent in their presentation. They're very good. But one of the contests they included since I started They added it, um, I think, three years ago. The actual name of the contest is called Mars Hill. And here's from their website how they describe the Mars Hill round of competition. It's called this. Mars Hill Impromptu is a speech event that trains students to connect culture and Christianity. Students learn how to identify universal themes contained in various classic and popular artistic genres and discuss the relationship of those themes to the biblical truths of Christianity and God's work in the world. The name of this event is taken from the Apostle Paul's speech in Athens in Acts 17, 
where he uses Greek culture, cultural ideas, and to find common ground and make a connection to Christ. As the name implies, the goal of this event is to use cultural references to draw the listener to the truths of Christianity. So what are you using as a tool around you to draw people to the truths of Christianity? We don't have to run out and embrace the sinful elements of our culture. Paul didn't do that, but he was aware of them, and he used them as a tool. So what are the tools you can use? Do we look at our world that way? Do you look at things that happen around you and realize, I can use this, whatever this is, this is a connecting point. I know my neighbor loves this, or I know they're really involved with this, and I could use that as a connecting point. I can use their love and their passion for this as a way to connect them and start seeking that and actively seeking it and praying for God to kind of move you in that way. Well, how do I connect this with Christianity? How do I connect fishing with Christianity? That's an easy one. There's tons of verses about fishing and Christians. Tons of verses about agriculture in the Bible. I mean, but look for things in our culture that connect people to Christianity. But we don't have to embrace and say, oh, that's all right. But be aware and know that it exists and use it as a way to connect people. And we do this and we connect with people in our lives so we can ultimately bring them to a point where we can share Christ. We're becoming all things to all people so that by all possible means, some might be saved. Who are you becoming all things to all people for? Are you expecting them to adapt to Christian culture and then, then you'll start opening that door? That, that, that's backwards thinking. If we're expecting a, a culture around us to live a Christian and God-centered life before they come to know Christ and then we'll reach out to them, we, we're, we're confused and mistaken. Non-believers, non-Christians, uh, non-acknowledgers of God aren't going to live like a God exists or like they believe. But oftentimes we find ourselves distressed because they don't, but then we don't want to do anything to do that, to, to solve that. It, it's kind of that catch-22 then. People that don't believe in God aren't going to live like God exists, and people that believe in God and live like God exists are mad because they don't live like God exists. Uh, it, there's a no-win situation there. Well, then who's got to be the, in a sense, be the grown-up in the situation? You know, when you argue with your kids, who's the grown-up? You are. We, I don't always act like it. I mean, I have to apologize to my kids. In fact, I struggle greatly to still act like a grown-up with people. Um, but the reality, and I don't mean that as insulting to non-believers, just as a reference to the illustration of, it's our responsibility then to realize non-believers are going to act like non-believers. Our responsibility is to find that cultural, that connection to, the, to Christ and the gospel. So where do we find that? Man, be aware and be attentive and look around you. And Paul did that. And then lastly, are you trusting God with the results? Are you trusting God with the results? A few years ago, um, the Packers lost the game to the Seahawks early in the season. And it dropped their record to one and two. And um, Packers fans, sometimes known as overreactors, went into a panic mode. And they were all worried about their season. It's going to be a lost season. It's over. We're one and two. All is lost. And their quarterback gave a press conference. And I don't know if any of you ever remember it. And he spelled out a word. And he said, R-E-L-A-X. Relax. And in a press conference for the NFL. And it was like, what? No one does that. You should be most worried of all. You're the quarterback. You're one and two. And they went on to finish their season 12 and four. After the one and two starts, so they lost two games the rest of the season. Sometimes we just need to relax. If we've trusted God, 
If he's moved in our spirit, we've acted on what he's put on our heart and our spirit, and we're connecting with our people around us, the rest is up to God. We trust him at that point. We don't have to live in a worry and a tension of, of thinking, oh, all is wrong. Every, no, this is where we step back and we relax and we trust God and we realize ultimately he's the one in control of it. There was a guy, and I've referenced this before, and I'm sure I'll reference it many times again, um, but I just love the quote. It was a speaker at our youth camp, and he said, I preach like it depends on me, but I go to bed knowing it depends on God. Man, if we're doing what God has called us to do, and we have a clean heart about that, then we can just relax and trust him. You know, sometimes we want to force issues to happen. And, it, and, and out of these, like, like we said, in the, in the way Paul talk to these people, it wasn't argumentative, it didn't appear, it wasn't confrontational, it wasn't insulting, and then he trusted God. But sometimes I think we, we so strongly desire maybe a friend or a family member to come to Christ that we push so hard on them that there's times we can push them away because we push and we push and we push and we push and we argue and we argue and we argue and now all of a sudden you're known as that crazy person in their family that no one invites to family gatherings anymore. And sometimes we just do what we can, and then we step back and we relax and we trust God. Do you realize up to this point in Paul's traveling, he has not had many victories. You know, he had a, he had a victory there in Berea, but a lot of places he wasn't warmly received. In fact, he was run out of town, and he hasn't had a lot of success yet. And yet he still continues to go and preach the gospel. He goes and shares with people. But what's going to happen years later and years down the road? Some of these same places that ran Paul out of town now have growing and strong and vibrant Christian communities. So much so that he writes letters back to them on how to run their church and how to do things. You know what he did? He shared the gospel. He trusted God with the results, even when that meant God was moving him on to a different location. We can't always force things to happen in our timing. You know, if it was up to us, we would force things to happen when we want them. But sometimes God is working on a different timing with a different plan. And we just sit back and we trust him and we see what he's going to do. Man, God was at work through Paul. He used Paul to connect with this culture and ultimately to bring people to Christ through that. Who are we connecting with? When God moves on in your spirit, are you acting on that? Let's pray. God, help us to be at a place where our spirit is sensitive enough to your leading and your calling to where we know when you're moving in us. Help us to be aware of that. And then help us to go a step further from being aware to acting on what you're moving in our lives. God, so many of us, we, we get to a point we feel you pushing us in a direction and yet involvement is a scary step and so we just leave it at the point of awareness help us to become people who move people who act people who engage their community people who engage their culture Lord, we don't have to embrace or accept things in our culture that directly go against you but help us to find ways to connect things in our culture to point people towards christ in their need of a savior um God, I just pray that you'll use, use our group, our family, our body of believers here to, to be the church, not just on Sunday morning, 
but to be the church when we go out into the world, to be the body of Christ at their job, at their school, in their families. And that you'll use us to, uh, to have a great influence in this world. In Christ's name, amen.